1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the John Solomon Reports podcast. Once again, this is Sophie Mann sitting in for John. I promise you he'll be back Monday, so you won't have to deal with me much longer. But today you do. Um, Today, we're going to be talking about a really, really interesting subject matter that uh, full disclosure is near and dear to my heart uh, for a number of reasons. It's anti-Semitism on campus. So in just a few minutes, we're going to be inviting on uh, Scott Shea, the co-founder and chairman of the Signature Bank of New York, who has a new book out that's called Conspiracy You. A case study. And what he really delves into in that book is the rise, the phenomenal rise, the really notable rise in anti-Semitism, not just on campus and in terms of the behavior of the student and faculty population, but in the actual lace of the academic content itself. So what Scott does in this book is uh, he attended Northwestern University a couple decades ago. And so he looks back at his alma mater and really in a couple of the departments, typically speaking, the humanities departments, anthropology, sociology, to a degree, you know, religious studies and such departments, and looks at the types of theories that are being uh, proliferated throughout these departments and where they come from, the types of theories that are taught to young students, Jewish and not Jewish, about Israel, about its roots, about the ways it operates now and used to operate, its governmental structures, its global You know, to the best of my understanding, what he was talking about was sort of its global intentions and where they come from and sort of what is the root of all of these theories that seem to be turning a generation of students against Israel. And I mean, I think that one really important piece of evidence that, you know, Scott and I go on to discuss is what we saw this past spring when Hamas terrorists Began firing thousands and thousands of rockets into the state of Israel. And Israel, of course, retaliated in kind. They fired back many fewer rockets, of course. Um, And thankfully, the Iron Dome defense system worked fabulously well, as it is designed to do. But, you know, what we saw in American college campuses, Northwestern being included in that category, was widespread support not for Israel and um, the people of Israel, the closest ally of the United States, the only sort of democratically minded nation in that region who that shares, you know, a, plenty of American values, which is the reason that we have historically been so close with them. But sympathy for Hamas and uh, sort of the sentiment that Israel was the one behaving badly, that this long-standing conflict, you know, had more to do with the bad behavior of the Jews and their incentives within Israel and globally than it did the singular actions of a repressive regime of terrorists who have long kept Millions of people, you know, living in impoverished squalor, who have time and again refused to come to the bargaining table with the Israeli government. Now, none of this, of course, is to say that the Israeli government has, you know, at every possible juncture, behaved perfectly. But um, I think that one thing that several, you know, thousands, thousands, and thousands of people were shocked to see this. This past spring was exactly how the younger generation of students, students who have been to college in the past decade or so, responded to the conflict and exactly what their sentiment toward Israel is. And so I think that people have been wondering exactly where that kind of sentiment really where its origin point is. And what Scott's book does is in a very detailed manner, take you through a specific case study of where a lot of this sentiment comes from and how it has been allowed to permeate and proliferate throughout campuses across the United States and the world. Because of course we know this is not even remotely limited to the United States. We've seen thoughts about this in uh, Europe and certainly other in other places that are, you know, considered global powers that are educating the future generation of leaders to uh, deal with and view Israel in ways that will matter. So it's a really interesting interview. And I think uh, an issue that, although not in the headlines every day of the week, is, uh, is something that should be paid attention to on the back burner, because we're really talking about the future generation of leaders and how they will go on to deal with Israel and its place in what has long been a tumultuous region and, uh, its relationship with the United States. So that's coming up right after a quick break. We're going to go to commercial right now, but we'll see you in just a few minutes.
0: You know what folks stress may be why you can't lose weight. If you've got moderate to high stress, like I do a doctor formulated weight loss supplement called lean could be your solution. Join now at AMAC, AMAC.US slash Just News. That's AMAC.US forward slash Just News.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the John Solomon Reports podcast. This is Sophie Mann still subbing in for John Solomon, but don't worry, he will be back soon. Uh, But everyone get excited because we have yet another great guest today. Um, He is the co-founder and chairman of Signature Bank of New York, as well as the author of several books, including his most recent book that we're here to talk about today. Um, I'd like to introduce Scott Shea, again, whose uh, most recent book is Conspiracy You, A Case Study. Scott, welcome to the program.
2: Sophie, it's a pleasure to be with you today.
1: Thank you so much for being here. So, um, talk to us a little bit about this book. I mean, it's you know an exploration of um, anti-Semitism on campus, sort of a hot button issue over the past couple of years. But what I found is that um, based on at least the couple of chapters that I've read of the book, you you sort of look at this issue from a slightly different perspective, which is the conspiratorial element of um, what goes on to be the theories that are that are permeated across um, U.S. campuses that pertain to anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the text?
2: Sure, I'd love to do that. So here's the thing, anti-Zionism, anti-Semitism are really, really bad, but as has often happened in the history of uh, humanity, the Jews are the canary in the coal mine. And what is really worrisome to me, and I think that is indicative of, uh, and I'll go so far as to use the word a corruption of academia, is that conspiracy theories about Zionists, Jews, and others are masquerading as scholarship in academia. And what's frightening is this is happening both on the far left and, as I show in the book, on the far right. And conspiracy theories are not just some sort of rhetorical charge, but they are and I show this in the book, they're very specific indicia of when you're finding yourself in a conspiracy theory. And these, the fact that presses like Stanford University Press, that Duke University Press are publishing books and professors, again on the far left and lesser known on the far right, which I show, are able to produce screeds where you have to believe in a conspiracy theory in order to understand what they're writing about is actually frightening and it's, it's, it's indicative, I don't want to say it's leading, but it's a phenomenon that's pointing to a sweeping degradation of academic standards and that's infecting the rest of society because what happens on campus doesn't stay on campus.
1: Right, so why don't you give us an example of sort of some of the subject matter and Subject sort of field areas where this type of conspiratorial research and theorizing um, really has become prominent? I mean, you would assume it's not so much in math departments or science departments, um, maybe not even economics departments, but where are we really seeing most of this? And uh, do you have any examples of it that you'd like to share?
2: Sure. I, first of all, I have a lot of examples, and that's what the book is, the book is about. It's a case study of my alma mater, Northwestern University. Um, And I go through professors at Northwestern, um, but elsewhere as well, who are propagating these conspiracy theories. And here's the thing. Um, It's, as you say, it's primarily, these conspiracy theories are primarily coming from the humanities and the social sciences. And um, you have, in some cases, whole departments that are convinced of a conspiracy theory against them. Um, So, for example, the anthropology department at Northwestern University, it would be very hard to articulate that someone didn't think Israel was all bad, indeed the worst country on the planet, causing evil Mm -hmm. to all sorts of people who had no idea that Israel was causing them evil. Um, and not only that, but the somehow Zionists are conspiring as to who gets tenure in anthropology mm-hmm. departments. I I talk about one book written by a full professor at Northwestern who's an anthropologist, who is is the text of the book is how, and is amazingly it's a Stanford University Press published book um with some funding from Northwestern mm-hmm. and it talks about how zionists are conspiring to harm anthropologists who don't share who don't follow some sort of compulsory zionism as they say from getting tenure in anthropology departments all across the country as those as those zionists had so much free time on their hand <laughs> that all they're doing is conspiring about anthropologists that is if if someone wrote that book, and by the way, the book shows no evidence of that. Right, it's right. exhaustive, and it shows two cases where pro-Palestinian professors didn't get tenure mm-hmm. and claims that's proof enough, but doesn't even compare the scholarship or the writings of those two pro-Palestinian professors or assistant professors who didn't get tenure to people who didn't get tenure elsewhere in anthropology or any other department but rather makes the assumption that that's the only reason. Now normally when a group of people after finding, an academic after finding that a group um, uh, is having uh, is, is, is finds that there's a group of people that is alleged to be conspiring against some group but can find no evidence of it usually that's Either paranoia or it's um, it's uh, it, it's something else. But here, it's just proof that the Zionists are so good at covering their tracks, and have so many resources that this is pervasive. Um, and of course, the, the 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 anthropologists of discipline have uh, have been voting on anti-Israel um, re- re- resolutions, and many led by folks who have clearly gotten tenure. It it's actually ridiculous that this was able to get printed. It is a conspiracy theory that requires that you believe in conspiracy theories in order to even understand the text.
1: Right. Well, so I guess that that leads into sort of my next question, which is that given the standard that you've explained in terms of what is actually in these papers uh, relative to their Apparent proliferation and the degree to which they are believed in these, you know, in theory, departments filled with uh, intelligent, qualified academics. What do you think explains that? I mean, has has a blind eye been turned? Is there sort of a universal uh, drop in the standard of academia that has allowed this type of um, ugly theorizing in? What What do you think explains, again, as I said, the uh, the proliferation of these types of anti-Semitic theories to Permeate mainstream academia.
2: Well, what I show, and 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 frankly, the example I gave from the anthropology department is, is actually one of, is is not the worst. But what I show is that the conspiracy theories I take, I, I trace them back almost directly to far left communist Soviet conspiracy theories, which, by the way, have been discredited by the release of the Soviet. Um, Soviet uh, archives Mm -hmm. where it's pretty blatant. We're going to make up some lies about Jews um, and Israel so that we can help discredit them and harm them to the benefit of our allies. I mean, just about as blunt as that Mm -hmm. along with far right, fascist Nazi conspiracy theories, which have been written about for many, many years. And um, Mein Kampf, some, conspiracy theories that you could read about in modern academia look like they're almost paraphrases of what happened, what Hitler wrote in Mein Kampf, which blew me away.
1: Yeah, no, that is certainly an egregious, if true, statement. Let's get into that just a little bit, because one one claim that I was surprised your book made was that this... um, that these uh, conspiracy anti-Semitic conspiracy theories that are you know uh, raging across United States campuses are coming from both the far right and the far left, and it's not on principle that that's hard to believe. It's more, I think, the thing that was surprising to me was that um, you know, I, I, as a as a not as as somebody who graduated college not too too long ago, there just isn't there's not a super large far right presence, at least in the realm of Professorship and academia sort of at large, especially in the humanities. You know, virtually all surveys taken and uh, statistics about the fields show that to be the case. So it's interesting yes. that uh, the claim here is that this is coming from the far right. Do you mean that it's current sort of purveyors of far right ideology from whom this is coming or that the ideology of things like Mein Kampf and formally far right ideas in a way that doesn't exactly map on to our current definition of the far-right are the genesis points of these theories.
2: Well, they're clearly far-right, but um, they generally, the far-right professors, for example, I give the example of Professor Arthur Butts. He's a tenured professor in the Electrical Engineering and Computer Science Department at Northwestern. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: He is a, he has written the myth of the 20th century, which essentially says that I'm sorry, not the myth, the hoax of the 20th century, the Mm -hmm. case against the presumed extermination of a European jury. And essentially he and I and I dived into this uh, cesspool of a book um, and 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 it's really very difficult to read. But he builds conspiracy theory upon conspiracy theory to say that there was no real Holocaust, that it was a typhoid epidemic that was brought by some Russian soldiers who were captured in a couple of particular places. No wow. big deal, nothing to look at here. And that the Jews were so good at creating this myth. They were able to leave thousands of documents in places and they were able to hoodwink Germans into falsely confessing, who confessed to crimes against humanity. They were the Jews were so good that they were able to convince judges, and even though no one major in the no major prosecutor, or judge in the Nuremberg trial was Jewish, they just they were bamboozled by Jews who happened to be at the uh, margins of these trials and the outskirts. I mean, it is ridiculous. But he has become one of the intellectual leaders of the far right.
1: Okay, so Scott, talk to us a little bit about, you know, the far left's influence on sort of the field of the academic field of anti-Semitism.
2: So here's the interesting thing. I sort of was surprised at the at at Butts' focus and the far right's focus on anti-Zionism. But when I started reading the left, and I'll just take one professor for the moment, uh, Stephen Salata, who is a famous professor uh, from the University of Illinois and other places who famously didn't get tenure at the University of Illinois, Mm -hmm. surprisingly, he makes the same essential arguments in a book published by Duke University Press. Mm -hmm. The problem with the remembrance, I'm quoting him, the problem with the remembrance of the Nazi Holocaust is that it happens in isolation from relevant historical events and worse from their ongoing consequences. It is not very useful at all if a corresponding genocide is taking place as with the Palestinians at the hands of Israel. Wow. Then he goes on later. Here's the point where you could almost be reading buts when you're reading Stephen Salata. Right. The Nazi Holocaust in Europe seems a direct antecedent to Israel's founding. There were plans from the outset of Zionism to rid the promised land of its indigenous population. So he's saying the same thing. We really shouldn't talk about the Holocaust so much. It's, it's, and we can't isolate it from other historical events, whatever those may be. Right no, I mean, the plan was to use the Holocaust, he says it out loud, the, the plan was to use the Holocaust to bamboozle the, and guilt the rest of the world into creating a state of Israel.
1: Right. I mean, which, which to begin is a uh, conspiracy theory in and of itself. Of course, that's just a completely incorrect interpretation of history. I think, as uh, as as most people, aside from perhaps some of these academics, would tell you. Um, so it's interesting that so much has sort of so many permutations of this theory have kind of reached campus centers and hubs today. Let's talk a little bit about what this kind of theory being so popularized on American campuses means for students. I mean, you this book specifically is, you know, as the title indicates, a case study. You look at Northwestern University, your alma mater, a, a school that to this day um hosts a a pretty a pretty significant portion of Jewish students. So, what do you think this type of theory being mainstreamed and tracked into the academic studies of Jewish students and non-Jewish students alike on college campuses does to campus life and sort of the proliferation of movements like BDS and like younger generations of, again, Jews and not uh, non-Jews alike being taught about Israel and um, Jewish global power in this way?
2: Well, they're being taught facts that are basically being taught conspiracy theories that are being presented as facts, which is really troubling because the first thing campuses universities are supposed to do is to teach people how to differentiate between facts and falsehoods. And that's not what's happening. Um, in terms of, in terms of what the motivation is, and I think that's what you're getting at. I found, and, and if, and I've, and I, and I, and I explained sort of some of the history of other conspiracy theories, um, by, um, scholars such as Stephen Byford and Kwasim Kassam, who have written extensively studying hundreds of conspiracy theories. And usually conspiracy theories have a political motivation with few exceptions. And the political motivations here are pretty clear. To convince students who are about to go into the world and become leaders and uh, and, and, and podcast interviewers um, <laughs> that Israel is the one imperfect nation in the world. everybody else must be perfect, and so despite the fact that there are a hundred disputed territories, despite the fact that there may be other human there may be other human rights violations going on other than Israel, this is the one country, only the Jewish state it needs to be boycotted, it needs to be divested, and it needs to be sanctioned, and Hamas needs to be supported, which views, which outwardly states that every Jew from the river to the sea should be expelled or exterminated. I'm not making any of that up. That's exactly what they freely say. And how can that actually be when you step aside? How can that actually be? And so, a variety of conspiracy theories are taught as fact at the university to show Israel must be really, really bad, somehow conspiring to create harm all across the world. The slogan, Gaza's is Ferguson. If you read mm-hmm. um, Angela Davis' book, there's no proof. There are right. no facts. However, the only thing that Gaza and Ferguson have in common is that they... Are both on the planet Earth, but set that aside. Um, this is proof enough, because this is what um, uh, this is what Professor Davis imagines. And uh, feelings are enough, and that's taken, then as a, that's taken then as a proof text, in fact, and people footnote that, and Ergo, Israel is really, really bad." Um, terms like settler colonialism. Uh, are taken to somehow be only directed toward or mostly directed toward Jews, Zionists, when the history of Israel, the history of that plot of land, is that the Jews were indigenous people. Now, Palestinians have a historical claim, and I do, I'm personally a strong supporter of a two-state solution, but if your goal is to make peace and to do a real estate deal, then that's one thing. If your goal is to, if you are demonizing and delegitimizing de- any connection between the Jews and the land and saying that all these Jews are doing there, all these Zionists are doing there, is plotting to harm people of color across the planet and are imperialist settlers, baby killers, uh, you know, you can I, they're probably polluting Mars, too, for all I know, then... The goal is not to make peace. It's eradication and elimination.
1: right. I mean, and certainly those narratives do end up coming back when students uh, and faculty members alike begin to rise up. I mean, you mentioned um the support of Hamas. I think certainly we saw that this past spring when uh, rockets again began to fly between um between you know, Hamas agents and uh, the State of Israel. Uh, and you know, the American college campus response was, I think, to some rather shocking. You saw sort of a uniform support not for Israel, but for um for for Hamas, for terrorists. And their behavior in that instance, um, and I think a lot of Jewish students were left shocked on these campuses. And uh, I think, um, I think Scott, your book correctly roots out sort of some of the the real origin points of the theories that, when disseminated in an academic environment um you know encourage behavior like what we've seen and saw really kind of in focus this past spring so a final question before we have to go um what do you think can really be done about this type of um, behavior and sentiment and sort of academic poison at a more fundamental level, both by students, Jewish and not, who are struggling to comprehend this type of behavior, and um, institutions who who are you know also struggling to comprehend this kind of behavior? And I think during the spring, sort of poorly walked a fine line about what they needed to do to support their Jewish students in, in the wake of this um, this type of show of support, not for the state of Israel, but for terrorists?
2: Well, first of all, they didn't finally walk uh, uh, the line at all. I mean, Rutgers University, whose president is a former provost of Northwestern, um, put out a statement first condemning anti-Semitism and then put out a statement condemning their condemnation of anti-Semitism. Yeah, good point and so, and look, you can 't say what happened in May was remarkable, because in the media, it'd be very hard to know that Hamas started this by um, uh, sending forty five hundred rockets towards civilian targets in Israel. Now, Hamas says this is all okay because there was a property dispute in a in a civil court in Israel, and so. Isn't it normal that to any civil dispute that um, between a landlord and a tenant who's, in which case the landlord in this case offered to let the folks there live there for three generations without rent as part of a compromise, isn't the appropriate response to launch 4,500 rockets at unconnected civilians? And, I mean, it's crazy, but yet that was somehow said well that's a valid response i hope everybody who has a civil dispute in the united states doesn't start launching rockets at unconnected people very true and this is the sort of craziness that somehow is allowed now on the far left there were um on the far left um there was encouragement even here in new york even within you know less than a thousand feet from where i'm sitting of um of 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 and I and I'm hard pressed to say this cuz it's uh, a, of almost pogroms where Jews were beaten up um sometimes to a pulp and for being Jewish so if you think the if you think the Jews are one thing and Zionists are another then the appropriate place to um protest is in front of the Israeli embassy or Israeli consulate it's not to find random Jews on the street
1: right and
2: During May, attacks against Jews who may have been Zionists or not, nobody bothered interviewing them, um, were, I think, quadruple the year before. Mm -hmm. And so this line is not being walked. And it's so scary because, and I'll just leave everyone with this this last thought. I'm the son of a Holocaust survivor. Mm -hmm. My father's family was almost totally wiped out. My father grew up in a town in Svexner, Lithuania. And when the time came that the Nazis marched into Swexner and took all the Jews, the local folks handed every last Jew over. Right. And there was no defense of Jews because there was an intellectual preparation for decades. Um, When my father was a young man, there was a blood libel against the Jews that was only averted when the young man who was supposedly murdered by Jews showed up, um, having gotten lost. Mm. The decade before, there was another blood libel against Jews. So if you do enough blood libel against Jews, unfortunately, the history is the consequences will be really, really bad. And this is just a wake up call because it doesn't just affect Jews the the other thing we learned from the, from the world war 2 and from the nazis is that It starts with the Jews, but it doesn't end with Jews.
1: Right. As ever, when, uh, you know, a a group is being discriminated against and lied about and institutionally targeted, um, there are, of course, outcomes of that. But um, so, Scott, thank you so much for being here today and lending us your wisdom and insight on this matter. Again, the book is Conspiracy You, a case study. It's out now. Um, You can get it on Amazon or really wherever books are sold. Scott, thank you so much for taking the time today. We so appreciate it.
2: Sophie, thank you for hosting me.
1: Of course. So we will be right back with more of the John Solomon Reports podcast after a quick commercial break. Welcome back, everyone, uh, to the John Solomon Reports podcast. We're wrapping up the day and the week. Happy Friday, I should say. I hope everybody's got some great plans for the weekend. Wasn't that a great interview? Uh, Scott is just so well-versed on these issues, and you know I tend to think that it's always pretty interesting to hear an interviewee discuss both their sort of academic relationship and personal relationship with a subject matter. So I was um, happy to hear Scott talk a little bit about his family and connection and why exactly this issue is so personal to him and matters and such a significant way to the Jewish community sort of at large. Again, you can check out the book Conspiracy You, a case study. It's actually not the only book he's written. He's written two others, both about, you know, similar subjects, not quite anti-Semitism on campus, but they pertain to Jewish community and sort of global issues pertaining to uh, Israel and some of the, the challenges that the Jewish population have faced in the past many years. So I would encourage you guys to check that out. Uh, more broadly, we'll be covering all these issues and more over at justthenews.com this weekend. Again, we're keeping a real eye on China and sort of what they've been up to in the Taiwanese airspace. It seems that President Biden has a meeting forthcoming with President Xi Jinping. So we'll be monitoring exactly any news out of there. We'll see if he can sort of hold his own when his administrative figures have struggled to hold their own over the past several months in front of their Chinese counterparts. Again, if you didn't listen to John's interview with former President Donald Trump this past week, I would really encourage you to check it out. It makes for some fun weekend listening as all most interviews with former President Trump do. They discuss a wide variety of subject matters, you know, of course they get into January 6th, November 3rd, what 2022 is going to look like election security, and we'll be back on several of those beats next week as uh, John picks the podcast back up. It couldn't be a more important time to be thinking about 2022. We're looking at a lot of different races right now, including, you know, the Virginia gubernatorial that um, some people are saying is going to really educate sort of the American populace writ large about how Americans are feeling when it comes to their politics moving forward and sort of where they are uh, in terms of democratic performance. Of course, Democrats have this unified government in Washington right now and they're struggling to get very basic things done. The debt ceiling, these uh, these packages that uh, in theory they have the votes for some days but not other days. So again, all of these complex issues are broken down by some of our amazing writers over at JustTheNews.com would always uh, recommend checking those out if you've got a couple extra minutes. Maybe one of these weekend mornings you should um, take up one of our congressional correspondent Nick Ballacy's articles. He does a great job walking you through the complexities of what is going on on the ground on Capitol Hill. And we all know that things have been really pretty complicated in terms of the minutiae of congressional legislating these past couple of weeks. So he's been an invaluable resource and will continue to be. Until Monday, though, folks, everybody have a great weekend. God bless you and your families and uh, the United States of America. We will see you Monday.
0: Folks, if you owe back taxes, fair warning, you're not going to like this. The IRS is mailing millions of IRS penalty canceling offer to do so call 1-800-245-6000 that's 1-800-245-6000 or visit tnusa.com slash just news that's tnusa.com slash just news hey folks have you heard of cancer fighting foods the American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and vegetables may actually lower